What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. On today's episode, we're going to hit a very timely topic, something that is on the top of everyone's mind, on the top of every newspaper. If you still read print newspaper, good for you, but on the top of every website for those of us that live online, and that is Russian sanctions, Russian export control. What the heck is it? Why do we hear about it constantly? Why is it changing like on the hour? And so for that discussion, which kind of gets away from TMT a little bit, but we may hit some technology aspects of it. I brought in two very well-known, knowledgeable experts in this field that I want to learn from that I hope the listeners want to learn from. First, we have Matt Bell, who's the practice leader of export control sanctions and trade for FTI Consulting. This is what he lives and breathes. And second, I have my colleague, here at Alan Porter, who is an expert in national security, and that is Sumi Ree. Matt, Sumi, welcome into TMT time. Nice Thanks, to Evan. be here. Good to be here. All right, so let's kick, kick things off where I started, and I'll first throw it to you guys to introduce yourselves and why you are the people that I need to be talking to on this topic. So Sumi, let's start with you. Great. Um, nice to be here. I focus on export control and sanctions and essentially advise companies whom they can conduct business with, whom they cannot conduct business with. That's a short way of saying what I do. So like if I really want delicious Russian vodka, not saying that I do or I ever drink it, then you're the person I can ask. Exactly. And I may be able to tell you what, which vodka is delicious, which not yep, <laughs> at the see, same time. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Matt, how about you? Well, so the, the team I lead at FTI is made up of former law enforcement, former government officials. We have a number of, I call them recovering lawyers like myself. We are a consulting firm. We don't practice law. And then we have a lot of people with in-house experience. Uh, and I also have in-house experience at three different companies prior to going into consulting at FTI uh, about three years ago when we started the practice. So we try to hit it from a much more practical angle um, not that all lawyers are impractical, but when you get the legal advice, sometimes operationalizing that in a company becomes a challenge. What do you do in your IT systems? How do you catch um, illicit procurement uh, activity? What are the data analytics you should employ? Those types of really kind of in the weeds, nuts and bolts activities we tend to help clients with more often. All right. Now I want to get right into it. We're at the end of March 2022. We're about a month or so into the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. And there are a slew of things happening, it seems to me like daily, um, on the sanctions front. So Sumi, I'm going to turn to you, like set the stage for us. What's going on? Why am I hearing about sanctions all the time? And, and why does it matter? I'm sure you've seen the name Putin everywhere, in your sleep, in all the newspapers. Haunting, well, haunting my dreams. Haunting your dream. Well, he and his forces have invaded Ukraine. And right now, the allied forces are not in, going to, you know, with their forces into Ukraine to help with the fighting. So what they decided to do is they're going to exact um, pressure 
on the Russian government, so they would back out of the territory. And one measure to do that is by imposing economic sanctions and export controls. And that's why you've seen a slew of sanctions being imposed. And it's been gradual because they could have done a very blunt force and all of a sudden declare Russia as a country that US government and others are going to impose embargoes, which is the most bluntest form of sanctions possible. Instead, they did a gradually. First, we're going to not allow you to send more high-tech items to Russia. We're going to designate oligarchs. We're going to designate key uh, Russian officials. That was not enough. The invasion continued. Russian forces kept going west. So they decided then we're going to have to exact stronger um, tolls on the Russian economy. How are you going to do that is by really pinching off any trade a lot of trade. At the moment, it's not a full embargo, but at this point, most items that are highly controlled by all these jurisdictions can't go to Russia. And the remaining, what people are expecting is if this aggression continues, it will go to a full embargo where no items that are controlled by any of the allied countries can ultimately reach Russia. And the same goes for financial uh, sanctions. Right now, most of the banks can't engage in transactions with more of the internationally uh, recognized banks in Russia that help funnel money in and out and to direct commerce. But beyond that, you know, at some point it may be that even more of the smaller domestic Russian banks will also be uh, sanctioned, which would mean all those who are still remaining and conducting business in Russia may not be able to remain. So Sumi, what you hit on the two things there, sort of the, the goods, the trade, and then the financial sanctions. What mechanisms does and can the U.S. government and I guess world other world governments use to put those things in place? Well, they can certainly in the United States. It can be done through executive orders and uh, promulgating of exist regulations or amending existing regulations, and that's exactly how it's been done because that's the fastest way to do it. Because if you want to enact statutes that require congressional actions, and that would take a very, very long time. And underpinning all of this is there is an act called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. That is the fuel, it's the authority in which the administration can impose all of these controls and sanctions measures. And in the EU, they're coming out with the EU resolutions. UK government is you know, quickly moving in step so that there are, these are all happening in tandem. So Matt, how are these, these sanctions enforced and, and police? Like, how do we know that they're working? How do we ensure that they're working? And by we, I mean, probably the global we, but when you try and enact these types of pressures on a foreign operator like Russia, how do we know what's, that it's actually happening and, and whether it's working? Well, I think there's two levels of enforcement. There's the official government enforcement, right? So OFAC, which administers these financial sanctions primarily targeted at banks and some of the oligarchs that are added to the specially designated nationals or SDN list, they don't actually have their own enforcement officers. Um, they have to rely on the FBI, HSI, and foreign law enforcement partners to identify transaction flows that might be violations. And so that's more of the traditional law enforcement mechanism in this particular set of sanctions, they have been very outspoken and public about putting together task force within the FBI well, across multi-agency, but also multi-jurisdiction. So you've noticed when you see the oligarch blocking sanctions and they're added to this list, then multiple countries are working together to track down the yachts and the airplanes. We have a client this week who reached out who buys and sells airplanes 
and they had a large offer from a European broker to buy a lot of airplanes for pennies on the dollar. And we said, well, that might be a red flag. Why are they trying to unload $100 million of planes for $10 million? Um, so there's, there's the government may also be looking at those transactions because those type of assets have to be registered. And so when they see the transfers of the registries, then they might look into, well, how did you pay for those things? So there's a law enforcement aspect. Then there's the practical aspect or the, the banks really enforce sanctions. They are highly de-risking from Russia. So they are just cutting off transaction flows, many of which are actually legal or currently authorized either by general license or by the fact that some of the sanctions were delayed implementation until a later date. They may have had a 30-day, you know, which we're coming up on. Some of them are now in effect that weren't originally in February when they were announced. But you practically cannot do that business because the banks are monitoring it and prohibiting it. I have a contact in Russia right now who works in more of a, a charity non-governmental organization. His bank is not sanctioned that he uses in Russia, but he cannot receive funds from the United States where most of his supporters are um, because the banks in the US will not transfer them to his Russian bank, which is not one of the sanctioned banks. And if he wanted to take out money, even though it's supposed to be a US dollar or Euro account, the bank has been under instructions from the government of Russia to only allow withdrawals in rubles at a terrible exchange rate. So that is kind of a, a practical enforcement of these sanctions beyond even what the law requires by banks themselves. So the, I've seen photos of the ridiculous yachts. What's the authority they the, the governments have to, to seize the property? And then once they're seized, um, what happens to them? Well, so as Sumi pointed out, um, in the U.S., it's part of that IEPA, that Emergency Economic Powers Act, the executive orders that come out to authorize that. Other countries, uh, the European Union has different authorizing legislation that permits them to pass sanctions, and part of that authorization includes the ability to seize assets uh, of those sanctioned parties. Practically speaking, what happens to them? Um, normally, they're seizing money. So most SDNs or similarly blocked parties, they want money in a bank account. They set it aside in a blocked account. They report it to the government and it just sits there um, until it can be released. The banks just have to hold on to it in these blocked accounts. U.S. government has allowed them to pull those funds sometimes into a singular blocked account instead of having to maintain hundreds of blocked accounts. But when you're talking about physical assets, that's a big question that I think is coming up more and more with these oligarchs. For example, with the airplane example, um, in talking to that client and, and their counsel, there's discussion about even if these are oligarch owned, do you go to OFAC and seek a license and say, we want to buy these planes, we will put the money into a blocked account, um, and then the oligarch doesn't get the benefit of selling their asset, but the government in Italy or the UK or whoever else has seized it does not have to figure out where to store and maintain airplanes that nobody can use. And so I think there is going to be a practical aspect of this where the governments don't want to hang on to these assets indefinitely. They don't want to store them and deal with them. So they need to find a practical solution. I think it is likely granting those licenses to conduct the transactions and then put the money into these blocked accounts. So you're talking about a fire sale, right? Of some, so like basically the wealthy people in the America and good countries can go get some Gulf, Gulf streams on the cheap. Possibly. 
if you get the authorization. But you know, if this you is an, <laughs> this is a very interesting time because, as Matt says, generally we're talking about funds and freezing those funds, putting a blocked account, is not that difficult. But we're talking about seizing large aircraft, yachts that actually have to be docked somewhere and stored in you know. A hanger that costs money, and these are issues that haven't come up before. I know in other sanctions regime like Iran, Cuba, that have already been in existence, freight forwarders sometimes face this, and they have to put it in a special warehouse, and they're blocking some of these shipments, but not at this kind of scale. <laughs> and I think question is going to arise: Who's going to pay for it? We'll block it, but who's going to pay for us to block and maintain all of these assets in perpetuity until it's released? Well, there's some. There's some discussion out there that these governments are specifically tar targeting the oligarchs and they're not necessarily thinking it will be a long term blocking because they're expecting if you get, I mean, think of it very practically. You have a bunch of billionaires, many of which have speculative backgrounds on how they obtain their billions of dollars. You have taken away their funds or their access to funds and a lavish lifestyle in hopes that they will pressure or worse to Putin to get him to stop this war uh, or maybe even get him out of power. And so the hope is that that's what will happen. And then if that does happen and they're part of that solution, then they might be released to get some of their items back. So there's a lot in the intel community who are talking about that is the oligarch plan. And if it takes longer than expected or it doesn't go as planned, they haven't fully thought through what they're going to do with a you know $300 million yacht or you know, $50 million plane that somebody has to take care of. They haven't kind of planned for that inevitability down the road that this may not go as planned and you're holding it for years. Yep. Some of these uh, fire sales, like I saw the owner of the Chelsea Football Club in England tried to fire sale his club. That's kind of been blocked. Well, um, it has and it hasn't, right? Because he said he's gonna sell it. And then he said, I'll donate the money to Ukrainian relief efforts. Yeah. And then the UK blocked him, sanctioned him, but then said, we'll grant a license to sell the club, but you cannot get the money. So it's not, in essence, a fire sale where it's going to be a reduced value. I think he'll still set a record for the price of Chelsea uh, and be the most expensive club ever sold. But it's like the government was like, we don't fully believe you're going to give the money to Ukrainian efforts. So we're going to sanction you and then give you permission to do it on condition that the funds don't go to you and are used in some other way. So it's like they're kind of holding him true to his word via a sanctions method in the UK. Because Evan, I mean, what you remember is the governments want to exact pain for those they believe are really supporters of Putin and all of his efforts. But at the same time, this is the finance and the commercial world are really intermingled. So it's never wholly just owned by Russian. They're going to be, you know, citizens of their own jurisdiction that partly own it. You don't want them to be penalized just because a co-owner happens to be a Russian oligarch that's sanctioned. So in these types of situations, like the Chelsea football team example, they don't want the pain, but depreciation of value to impact those other owners or potential partners in the uh, business but they just want to make sure those oligarchs cannot get access to the residual value of their interests, even if it's sold. So it's always maintained in a blocked account until this is all resolved. Matt, you mentioned, you know, a client coming to you and saying, I would like to buy 10 airplanes for $10, $10 million, not the billion, um, it, which sparks an interesting question for me, which is what, what are companies or clients coming to the both of you and asking right now? Like, what are, what are the questions? Are they, 
saying, how do I get this stuff on the cheap? Is it, how do I keep doing business in Russia? How do I get money out of Russia? What types of questions are you guys fielding? I, I would say the vast majority of our clients are pulling out of Russia completely. And so then it's more of a conversation around what happens when you pull out of Russia? What are the implications? And of course, you may still have accounts receivable in Russia that are you going to collect those? Are you going to write them off? Um, could you collect them in rubles, even if your contracts in euros or dollars? What about labor contracts? Do you have employees there? Are you abandoning equipment? The Russian government has been making moves to nationalize or seize any assets that are either left in Russia or owned by companies who are based in countries that have been antagonistic to Russia. And then, of course, the two main things we talk to them about is you're putting yourself at risk for cyber attack as you pull out. Uh, Russia is not going to be happy about that. The FBI has been warning companies about that. That's been in the headlines. And then, of course, illicit procurement. You have a, 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 some goods that Russia has wanted for years for strategic purposes, for their military intelligence efforts. Now, you have a much broader uh, bucket of restricted items based on the export controls that have been placed on Russia, including items that historically no other country controlled except the United States, what we call our AT-controlled, anti-terrorism controlled products are now in categories three through nine, at least, uh, licensable to Russia with a policy generally of denial with there's some exceptions in there, right? So that's a much bigger bucket of what they'd like to get. And then you have the practical, like we said, sanctions and controls where companies are allowed by law to sell their product to Russia, but for their own corporate responsibility, ethics and morals, what, however they, they message that in their press release, they will not support Russia. So they don't want to sell their product to Russia. So we talked to them about how do you identify illicit procurement schemes? And we have several colleagues at FTI who have done that in the government and the FBI as an export control officer in Russia. They spent their whole careers tracking illicit procurement schemes and networks. And so you can't just take a big deep breath and say, ah, we're pulling out of Russia, we're all good. And so that's the conversations we're having. Right, and I, I echo what Matt said. And frankly, it's sort of evolved because as I mentioned, even these export control and sanctions measures have been more somewhat gradual. It was like step-by-step. Step. So in the beginning, people were figuring out okay, we're going to remain in Russia, but how can we do it while complying with all these sanctions? But when the barrage of sanctions happen daily or every other day, they realize we really actually cannot remain in Russia and be complying with all the different jurisdictions that are imposing these very sanctions measures. So now the discussion is how do we pull out and how do we pull out in a manner that you know, minimizes um, economic loss, but actually still complies with export controls because Matt alluded to this, that even when you're pulling out, if you leave some of these equipments that you're not allowed to quote unquote export to Russia, if you leave it there and then the Russians get a hand of it, that's an in-country transfer of something that you're not allowed to export directly to Russia. Then the question becomes, do I have to destroy those equipment before I leave the country? So these are the questions that we're dealing with. For the non, um, the other non-US, non-EU, non-UK headquartered um, company clients that I have that traditionally thought that their products were not subject to the export controls of any of these jurisdictions, they now realize with the expansion of the export controls, certainly by the United States, that their products now all of a sudden could be subject. So there's been requests to analyze, okay, can you do the, you know, the new foreign direct product rule analysis to see if our products potentially could be subject. And that, you know, obviously 
is not something that has been done previously. So just getting the management understanding of how this works has been pretty challenging in terms so, of what we're doing. And finally, we, what we're doing is this also goes to another point that Matt made is, you know, this happened in other sanctions regime, there are going to be diversion, right? There's an economy out there called Russia, it's a large economy, and they need and they source a lot of goods outside of Russia. And with all of these blockages coming from the traditional sort of source of import, where they're going to rely on. And I think news reports in the US government have already indicated that they expect that to be coming potentially partly from China, or other jurisdictions, then it's incumbent upon you as a company that may have traditionally made items that are now not exportable to Russia to conduct an assessment. And what does that assessment look like? You know, look at all of your uh, sales data, look at all the materials that you have had traditionally, what are the touch points with Russia, and then figure out has any of those customers decreased their you know, orders for the product when you know that that customer ultimately sells into Russia or has projects in Russia? So those are the risk assessment that we have some clients currently conducting with our um, assistance. So you're doing traces on the products like in manufacturing, like is this really getting to the person you're selling to or is it going all the way back to Russia? That's how they're trying to procure. Because, you know, when in the Trump administration, there are very strict export control measures placed certainly by the United States government with respect to exports to Huawei. Similar types of inquiries have come from the U.S. government for certain manufacturers saying, what are you doing to make sure that your items that you sell to another third party ultimately is not diverted to Huawei because they still want to have access to those technology and goods. And, you know, so for those who have had that experience, this is an easier ask to conduct this risk assessment. For those who have never had exposure to the restrictive export control measures for Huawei, they're learning this new um, and realizing that this is a really difficult task. But I, I can tell you some clients have already received calls from you know, BIS, which is the Bureau of Industry Security of the Commerce Department and the enforcement arm, sort of asking in a friendly way, but more of a, as a warning, what measures are you taking to ensure that your products, especially the ones that the US government knows that the Russian entities and government may want are not being diverted to Russia. Well, and a uh, few points on that that we're working with clients on. Uh, so the US government calls you, as Sumi just said, well, how do they know to call you? Well, of course they have intelligence and other things, but previously, if you were doing business with Russia directly, you would fill out from the US perspective, what's called your EEI, electronic export information. Uh, it's an electronic document, but it tells them what you're sending and to who you're sending it to. So they have data scientists in BIS, in the Office of Enforcement Analysis, who are churning through this data and they're saying, wait a minute, all these companies used to sell these products to Russia, and Russia still wants them. So these are the prime targets. So if you're not looking at your own data to figure out how you're gonna be targeted for review by BIS and the export enforcement uh, arm of that, or the export control officers overseas, like my, one of my colleagues used to be the export control officer in Russia and Europe, and that's exactly the actions they took. OEA, enforcement analysis, sent them <laughs> information based on these filings and said, go do outreach, go talk to these companies. And to Sumi's point on those who've experienced the Huawei difficulties, part of the difficulty is the U.S. government has lost a lot of visibility into where products are going in China. They have they already lost visibility completely in Russia years ago because they kicked out the export control officer and would not allow end use checks. China still 
on paper permits end use checks by the US government on where products go, but it has to be a licensed shipment and they have to go ask MOFCOM, the Ministry of Commerce in China first for permission. And then they're either denying it, delaying it. Uh, and so the US government's not getting that view. So licenses are harder to come by. There's more scrutiny being applied because they feel like they're losing that visibility. So industry is responding. We're working with a number of clients on essentially privatizing end use checks. We have former government officials who did these end use checks. We have a colleague in Beijing who did more than anyone ever. She, she did them for 24 years for the US government. Could we write that into a license application? As a condition, a third party, reputable, approved by BIS, whether it's us or somebody else, has to go confirm the details of the transaction, see it in action in that country, see it installed or you know on the assembly line of this company to confirm it wasn't diverted and report back. That's a license condition. Both governments would need to sign off on it. And we've had success getting both the, the, a Chinese state-owned entity to get the government of China to sign off on that approach. And we're working with BIS to get them to sign off on it as a way to bring visibility, but keep everyone's equities in mind from a political standpoint. And just to add to all of this, what I would urge you, every company that are listening to this podcast is that, okay, if you got a warning from BIS, now that's that's very serious because they'll probably do a follow-up. And it's even more serious if they get intelligence that your items have reached Russia. Now, for all of those who have not received the phone call, you know, you may be getting the phone call, you may not be getting it, but the warning is out there. So what should you be doing is you really have to conduct a risk assessment. And I say this because when we were representing other companies getting these inquiries about exports to Huawei, what was most effective in helping defend the company is, listen, we have these compliance measures. We have looked at all of our sales. We've looked at our sales and marketing channels. We've looked at X, Y, and Z, and we, have, we can now confirm to you that all the best efforts have been in there to ensure that these are not sold to third parties that will ultimately sell to Huawei. It would not be any diff different exercise here is this is what we understand about our own sales channel. This is what we know about where these our products are wanted, where the these demands are. And then we have actually looked at our current direct customers and where they ultimately intend to sell to. And we've taken all of these measures to understand the risk profile. And when you have that done, you can defend yourself if you get these inquiry. If you, they call you and say, well, we only sell to these people and we're, that's all we do. That is not never gonna put, get you into a very good place. So we all ask everybody be, to be very proactive because law enforcement ultimately expects the industry to self-regulate and these calls and all these announcements is one way to get that cooperation from industry. It seems to me like when you describe the data scientists, Matt, in the, in the room crunching to, to make sure nothing's getting to Russia or find all the people that are sending stuff to Russia, that the, at least the U.S. Is, is doing a lot. So for those that are um, saying, well, why aren't we sending troops? It sounds to me like we are actually sending troops, just not into battle. We're sending them into the battle to prevent Russia from profiting off of anything related to the U.S. I, my question now is, this appears like there could be a negative impact on U.S. businesses that do um, work in Russia. Uh, what is the government's response to that? Are they doing anything with that? Because I can imagine there are entities that are selling or used to selling into Russia or Russia adjacent that are now losing a ton of business. Um, 
how are they able to withstand this? And is there anything being done to help those in that situation? I think there's a lot of lobbying efforts being done towards that. Um, at FTI, we have an entire segment called Strategic Communications. They do a lot of public policy, lobbying, and government-related work. I know industry associations and individual companies are reaching out to them. You know, I'm based in Houston, Texas, energy capital, right? You had major oil and gas companies pulling out of relationships that are worth tens of billions of dollars that they fought for decades to get the contracts for. And they're also kind of antagonistic to some of the policies of the current administration on, we'd like to drill more. We would like to open pipelines. We would like to do these things. So whether it's some type of aid package for those who gave up business, which I know is being lobbied for, or in certain industries like energy, I think it could be more of the, the trading of, hey, we pulled out and we did this in support of all of this, even if some of it could still be done legally, um, give us more drilling permits, give us easier access, less regulation on X, Y, or Z. So absolutely, I think those things are happening right now in the halls of Congress. I know they are, um, but I don't know that we've seen the concrete steps forward as to what the answers will be, but it's all sorts of industries. I was talking to a client yesterday who's in the cosmetics industry. Russia was their fourth largest market in the world for selling cosmetics. They've decided to stop selling to Russia. Some of their products are considered luxury goods, so they would have been restricted, but others are not. So they're going beyond the requirements of law and they're doing it on their own because they think it's the right thing to do for their, for their owners and shareholders and all their stakeholders and employees. Uh, but that's a big cost and they're not sure where they're going to make it up at this point. So, and I've, so this is how I'm going to bring this back to TMT time. I have read that there's like, you know, there's IP issues because Russia's sort of like claimed things that are, exist there now. I feel like the McDonald's are now called something else like Uncle Vlad's. Um, have you been approached, either of you, in terms of IP issues, like worried about brand diminishment, diminishment or anything like that? Um, being, you know, goods that are in Russia that you can't get back out. Now their brands are everywhere, movies, copyrights, things like that. I mean, certainly we've had clients that have received notices from the Russian government, um, especially for those that have announced that they're going to be leaving Russia and closing shop, that you better rethink your decision essentially is a warning. They send um, a photo of Putin with his bare chest riding horseback. That absolutely, absolutely. With whatever the product <laughs> yeah. that the, the client is selling and warning them that if you, if you don't bring your products back in and open your stores, we're essentially going to uh, seize your assets. And, and that means tangible and intangible assets. I mean, these are things that are still developing because obviously uh, the measures that one can take is, is going to be complicated. Uh, and the, from our understanding so far, the Russian government, I'm not sure if they have still have passed that law that would allow this actual seizure because right now these notifications are warnings that this is what we intend to do. Um, so we will have to see the contours of what the Russian law looks like, uh, what are some measures that can be taken, uh, what are some future U.S. government actions that can be taken on behalf of, for example, U.S. companies that are facing these um, challenges and potential threats, or maybe those threats will be, uh, become a reality and they lose their uh, IP, at least in the Russian territories. Yeah. But these are developing at the moment. Yeah, and I would say, you know, especially as I look at our technology client base, 
technology items generally have some connection to software and software updates that need to occur. And so even if you're pulling out of the country and not selling hardware, what are you doing about software updates? Are you continuing to support those devices? There's, there's a public policy argument that we are not trying to inflict pain on the average Russian citizen. Uh, many of them are standing out in the streets protesting at their own risk and being thrown in jail and beaten by their government. And we want them to be able, from a public policy perspective, to put that on Instagram and post it and let the world see it. And so there's this idea of you still need to support technology products. You still There's exceptions in the export controls for personal communication devices. Um, smartphones uh, is the greatest example we see of that. But then uh, to Sumi's point on IP, you see you know companies who do streaming services saying, okay, we're gonna not stream to Russia anymore, but then there's gonna be pirated copies in a, in a new streaming service that will pop up. Um, so in the, in the TMT space, there's even more complexity because of the software and the public policy arguments, especially around communications products. And who do we want to be able to still communicate to not only get their message out, but you've seen President Zelensky in Ukraine and, and many other officials very actively using social media. Um, there, there was a video recently from Arnold Schwarzenegger, a very powerful video intended for the Russian people, his friends in Russia, as he called them, that was a very great message that he wants to get directly to the people. Well, making sure that those pathways are open to receive those messages from a public policy perspective, I think even the allied countries that are against Russia on this, on this issue want those messages to get in. So it's a highly complex situation more in the tech space because there's a desire to pull out, but there's also a desire to continue to support that public policy for the average Russian citizen to be heard and to receive the messages that we want them to receive. Now I wanna see that Arnold Schwarzenegger message. I'm gonna go go Google, look it up after, awesome. I'm gonna go look for it after this. And, and, but frankly, from a US government, even in past regimes, they've always allowed some opening so that these type of platforms for communications among the people can remain. The only difficulty is notwithstanding all of these avenues to allow continued communication, all of that still requires some type of financial transactions. And, and even if there is an outlet to allow for these items uh, services, software to go to Russia, if there's a payment associated with it, that that complicates it and the access to all of these platforms get complicated for those reasons. All right. I usually end these podcasts with some uh, light, fun subjects, but since this, we're not talking about something super fun here, I'm going to just- Not fun, it. Evan. Yeah. I like to uh, disagree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say this. Both of you are experts in things relating to international space. So if I was able to get away from the office and take a vacation this year outside of the United States, and I'm not sure I can, where should I go? Sue me first. Oh, me first. Oh, my goodness. I haven't even given this thought about where you could be going. See, I, um, I stumped how about, people how about, how, how about North Korea? <laughs> I want to come back. I want to come back from this trip. You, you want to come back from this trip. Oh, is there anywhere out, any place out there where you're not going to be bombarded by the effects of what's going on in Ukraine? If you can find that destination, that's where I would urge you to go because it's, it's been a very sad, sad experience for all of us. I know I, know I said uh, sanctions and export control is fun, 
But right now, if I were to go on a vacation, I'd like to go somewhere where I wouldn't hear about any of this news. Yeah, because the other direction. The but, other direction. <laughs> yeah. All right. What about you, Matt? Uh, it, one of my favorite places I've been, Tromso, Norway. It's 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. You can see the northern lights. Um, if you go on a night that is not cloudy, unfortunately, when I went, it was cloudy. But I did get to go on some day trips around some beautiful fjords. Uh, and it's on the jet stream. So even though you're in the Arctic Circle, it was during the 30s during the day in February. So it's not that bad. Um, you, can, you, know, you can get to Oslo or, or really anywhere in that, the Scandinavia or Northern Europe. There's usually flights up to Tromso, but beautiful part of the world. Very small, quaint town and just a cool place to hang out. And maybe right. less news coverage of sanctions. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Exactly. All right. Sumi, Matt, thank you both very much. Appreciate your time today. Uh, very timely and appropriate. So appreciate that you guys gave us so much of your, of your day. We'll talk to you both soon.